Once in a while, a gravestone or marker stops you in your tracks. I was exploring one of the most beautiful cemeteries I've ever been in. It's Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis, Tennessee. Walking through the cemetery is so peaceful and gorgeous. There are big flowering trees, lots of amazing monuments. In fact, I could probably write 50 episodes just about this place. I came to a grassy field with only one large marker. A big monument with a long inscription, dark gray granite, and written at the top, no man's land. Today, we will get to the story of what lies beneath there in Elmwood Cemetery. What is no man's land? The answer is horrifying and terribly sad. It also is a story that we can totally relate to at this time in history. But I think most of all, it's a story of great heroism, sacrifice, and human kindness. Everyday people that work to save a city's population. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi everyone, I'm your host Lachelle. Welcome to the podcast Stones, Bones, and Shadows. It's our first episode. We're so excited to bring you stories each week about amazing cemeteries and burials around the world. I'll have rotating co-hosts throughout this series. I'm so excited to share it all with you guys. My co-host today is one of my ride or die girls, Amy. Hey everybody. Hey, Amy. I'm so excited to have you on my first episode. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Last year sometime, I was driving over to Amy's house, and I had an idea. (laughs) Now, if you know me, that this is not something new. I mean, everybody gets ideas, I guess. But, like, I'm known for having more ideas and plans than I could ever accomplish in 10 lifetimes. But when I got to your house, what did I tell you? You said, I have a great idea. I just thought of it. I want to do a podcast about cemeteries. (laughs) As usual, I say, we can do this and we can do that. I suck Amy into all of my plans, whether she wants to do them or not. So I know this is out of your comfort zone. (laughs) It's good for me. So I'm excited that you're here. I love me a good cemetery, don't you? Oh, yes. Did you know that people that love cemeteries have a name? It's called tapophiles. I did not know that. There's actually a name for us. It means basically just someone who loves the stones, the burials, the history. Well, then you definitely qualify as a tapophile. I do. I do. I think you do, too. Yes, I would agree. (laughs) I'm pretty sure some people will think that this is a really wacky hobby. And I know a lot of my friends will be surprised because I actually don't talk about it a whole lot. So, yeah, it's just something our family does is go to cemeteries. 
on vacation, we look up cool cemeteries to go to as one of the historical sites. We, we love history in our family, so it's just kind of that next step, I guess. You find out a lot of history in cemeteries. Yeah. And then we especially love to find where ancestors are buried and go and, you know, see those cemeteries and find them. And we'll always do a lot of photography and stuff at cemeteries. So when we took this trip to the south, we looked up cemeteries and this one in Memphis just turned out to really be one of my favorites. So that's interesting. Tell me, how can there be a no man's land in a cemetery? Like, what's that all about? Let's dive right in. I found a lot of interesting things about it. So here's what the marker reads. In four public lots known collectively as no man's land, lie the remains of at least 1,400 victims of the great yellow fever epidemics of 1873, 1878, and 1879. Memphis lost over 8,500 citizens to the disease, and 2,500 of these rest at Elmwood. At the peak of these outbreaks, Elmwood was required to handle over 50 burials a day. Due to the sickness and labor shortages, many bodies were piled about the ground waiting for burial. Persons from all levels of society were interred in trenches in an area formerly reserved for paupers and unknowns. By 1878, half of Memphis's 50,000 citizens fled the city. Yellow fever struck 90% of the remaining population, killing 5,100. The epidemic so decimated its population that Memphis became bankrupt in 1879 and was declared a taxing district of Nashville. In commemoration of all forgotten victims who perished in the epidemics by Robert Kaplan, M.D., Christine Ross, M.D., Jim D. Taylor, May 1985. So that day in July, what I had come across was a mass grave of yellow fever victims. After reading the words of the marker that was erected years later, I thought about all the people buried there and who they might be and how sad it was that there wasn't even their names. Then I wondered more about yellow fever and what the city really had gone through. When I got home from the trip, I got online as I researched I learned the events of the yellow fever epidemics, and I also found many heroes and angels of mercy that came forward during this tragic time. As I worked on this episode, their stories touched me even more than they had back five years ago when I took the trip to the south and toured this beautiful resting place. I think it's because of what we've all been through lately. Our lives have been changed by the COVID-19 virus. We felt the fear, the uncertainty, the confusion of symptoms. We didn't know how long the incubation period was, how it was transmitted between people, and so many other concerns. It's been such a scary time for us. But we have seen medical care workers, doctors, nurses, ordinary people making a difference in every way as we fight through this difficult time in our history. We've all been affected in every way, seeing friends and loved ones be sick, pass away, others suffering long-term health difficulties, loss of employment, just the fear that you could get it. Your loved ones could die and you wouldn't even be able to be with them at the hospital. We still don't really even know when it'll be over. That's right. It's something that has affected every one of us. 
It was difficult when, you know, we were all locked down and none of us could see each other and our teenagers were all tired of being home and being homeschooled and being so isolated. Being isolated. Yeah, no interaction. It was hard. That was really hard. And then your family ended up getting the virus, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was awful. I feel bad for every person who's had to go through it, even so much worse than we did. Yeah, you guys were yeah. so sick and it was so scary. So I think it's just kind of changed us. And as I was reflecting back to you know, the cemetery, no man's land, yellow fever, and the large number of gravestones that I've seen all over the southern United States. Like during that trip, we went to a lot of different churches and graveyards, and there would be headstones that just said died of yellow fever. As I got to this one was later in the trip and we saw no man's land. And I was like, okay, I've got to figure out what this yellow fever deal is. I feel like I can empathize just a little bit with what they went through. Yeah, I think we all can. They were afraid. They suffered losses and devastation. We at least have modern medicine. We even have a vaccine pretty much a year after the virus was discovered. But back then, well, they had nothing. Can you even imagine if 90% of our city had come down with COVID? No, it was bad enough. (laughs) Just the way it was. It was so (laughs) true. Yeah. But back then, they had nothing. Early Americans were clueless as to how yellow fever was transmitted. The first outbreak in America occurred in New York City in 1668. English colonists in Philadelphia and the French in the Mississippi River Valley recorded major outbreaks in 1669 as well as additional yellow fever epidemics in Philadelphia, Baltimore, and New York City in the 18th and 19th centuries. The disease traveled along steamboat routes from New Orleans, causing some 100,000 to 150,000 deaths in total. The yellow fever epidemic of 1793 in Philadelphia, which was then the nation's capital, resulted in the deaths of several thousand people, more than 9% of the population. The national government fled the city, including President George Washington and an infected Alexander Hamilton. As the 19th century wore on, yellow fever outbreaks would increasingly be confined to the South. There were a few things Memphis knew about yellow fever for sure in 1878. They knew yellow fever showed up in the hot summer months and early fall and that the plague would end after the first frost. They knew it first hit port cities like Charleston, Galveston, and New Orleans, and when they did, it was a terrifying waiting game as it moved up the river. They knew that yellow fever meant, in most cases, a horrible death. There had been terrible outbreaks in 1828, 1855, and in 1867 in the city of Memphis, and each epidemic at least doubled in victims. In 1873, there were 5,000 cases in Memphis alone and 2,000 deaths. So when they started hearing about the dreaded fever, just five years later in 1878 in New Orleans and Vicksburg, the populace was terrified. The people got to work and tried cleaning and disinfecting the city. 
they tried quarantining and not allowing any boats on the river to dock in Memphis, but to no avail, the fever hit their city. When the populace heard of the first case and death, Kate Bayonda, whose restaurant was on the shores of the Mississippi, panic ensued and the people that could afford to leave the city evacuated in droves. A procession of wagons piled high with furniture and women and children with men walking alongside filled the roadways. The trains and boats were jammed. People would force open windows and fight their way aboard. The steamship John D. Porter took people fleeing Memphis northward in hopes of escaping the disease, but it backfired on them all when they were not allowed to disembark due to concerns of spreading yellow fever. The ship roamed the Mississippi River for the next two months before unloading her passengers, which to me was reminiscent of some of the cruise ships right. that there were people on that weren't you know, able to get off. Inside of 10 days, it is estimated that 25,000 people left the city, and many never returned. This left 19,000 people, mostly the poor, left in the city of shuttered shops and padlocked offices to fend for themselves. That sounds horrible. Reminds me of that show, Walking Dead. Oh, I bet it was just so dreary and depressing and scary. So I'm curious to know, what did the doctors actually believe at that time about the disease compared to what we know now? The doctors at the time, they actually kind of disagreed about the disease and the spread of it. Some believed that spores or seeds of illness were somehow carried in a miasma or bad air arising from the marshy and swampy grounds. So they thought it just came up from the land. I guess so. Just all the nasty water and stuff that it was just releasing seeds and spores of illness into the air. Breathing it in. Mm -hmm. Some people believed that they could then contract the disease from the excretions, bedding, towels, and dishes and stuff from the sink. So they thought it was contagious. Yeah, I can see how they would think that even mm-hmm. even now. There's so many icky things you can catch from things like that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. So even with 100 degree heat and suffocating humidity, they believed if they built fires in their homes and closed all the windows, they might be able to kill that bad air that came in from the outside. And you can just imagine how that must have exacerbated the symptoms and the things they were going through. Like dehydration and weakness. I'm sure that just made it worse. Yeah. Have you ever been to the South in the summer? No, but I've heard about it. You literally can't even hardly breathe. (laughs) It is so hot and and muggy. So I just can't even imagine. Like Like that would kill people all by itself. Yeah. In the house. Like building a fire. Can't imagine. And then when a person died, they took... You know, everything that was from them, their bedding, their clothing, and burned it all outside, just trying to rid their homes of the germs and the disease. And they didn't even know that they could not give it to each other. They tried everything. They were taking herbal remedies, quack doctor fake remedies. They sprinkled carbolic acid and lime as disinfectants. And isn't that toxic? I think so. Yeah. See, they're trying so hard and they're just making it worse. The desperation. (laughs) 
even though the details of yellow fever are pretty gross and, in fact, absolutely disgusting. Not fun to listen to. I think it's important to the story that you know what the victims went through. So if you're squeamish or newly pregnant or have a (laughs) five-year-old that's going to ask you for the next week why that lady was talking about black vomit, then you might want to fast forward. Okay, so tell me about it. It began with a piercing headache, feeling nauseous. You could have constipation, chills, and a fever. This is reminding me a lot of uh, when I had COVID, so, <laughs> or the flu. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a lot just kind of like the flu. But then they would have severe pains in their head and in their back, and then a very high fever. After a few hours or days, a person would hit a turning point. The fever would then go down, and a lucky few would then ascend up out of the misery they'd been suffering, and they would slowly begin to recover. And thereafter, they'd be immune to the virus. But for the majority of people, the fever would return, and they would then descend literally into a hell on earth. Because the pain was so intense that the victims would scream in agony. Inside the hospitals were loud with the wailing of patients. And sometimes they became so crazed that they would run through the streets. They would thrash about. There were homes full of families that they found dead once the doctors finally arrived. Bodies stiffening in their own filth living babies with dried black blood smeared on them, still trying to nurse at their dead mother's breasts. Occasionally, a poor soul wandering delirious naked through the streets, screaming in pain. That sounds horrible. I mean, I can't even literally imagine. like a scary movie. Yeah, a horror movie. It sounds <laughs> horror so movie. sad. So I'm curious. I mean, this all sounds horrible, but what, why did they call it yellow fever? The infected person's skin and whites of their eyes would turn yellow. Soon after this, the victim would sometimes bleed from their eyes, nose and mouth, and would begin vomiting black blood, the dreaded black vomit. And actually in Latin countries, this disease was called black vomit or vomito negro. The liver and kidneys eventually failed People were puking, sweating, delirious, screaming in torment. And usually within two weeks, the poor victims died in agony and stench. One man wrote to his sister about it. The fever raging and spreading all over the city. It is now nearly two months to run before frost. Our people are falling in every direction. God help us. Where will the end be? John M. Keating wrote a book about those times, and he recalled, quote, An appalling gloom hung over the doomed city. At night, it was silent as the grave. By day, it seemed desolate as the desert. There were hours as if the day of judgment was about to dawn. Not a sound was to be heard. The silence was painfully profound. Death prevailed everywhere. Even the animals felt the oppression and fled from the city. Rats, cats, or dogs were nowhere to be seen, end quote. What? Even rats? You'd think they'd be having a heyday with this. 
Vomito negro, no bueno. Wow. <laughs> no me gusta. There were so many dead, they couldn't deal with them all. Hellish scenes of coffins piled in wagons or on sidewalks outside houses. At one point, the death toll was around 200 a day. They took a cart through the streets and called out, bring out your dead, which reminds of the bubonic plague times. So it was like Monty Python. Bring out your dead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not dead yet. (laughs) I feel fine. (laughs) You'll be dead as stone in a moment. Stone dead in a moment. (laughs) You'll be stone dead in a moment. The air was filled with the stench of death, smoke from burning clothing and bedding. Barrels of tar were also lighted in hopes of killing the miasma that they believed was the cause of the disease. Cannons were even fired off to disperse the fever's airborne seeds. For a time, the funeral bells were rung at burials, but eventually the incessant tolling became too depressing. It would have been nonstop. That would drive everyone crazy. (laughs) I was going to say, it probably was more not depressing, but just crazy making. In the midst of it all, only a few noticed that mosquitoes were, in the words of one editor, as vigorous and desperate as ever. What we now know, and what the world didn't know until 1900, is that all of this was carried by a tiny pest, a silvery mosquito. It originally came from West Africa, where it fed on primates in the jungle, and then spread it to forestry, industrial, and agricultural workers, and found its way to other parts of the world, stowing away on trade steamers and slave ships. Its disease was carried with infected people. So the people that then would get to the Americas that were infected are mosquitoes, which are a little bit different species, would bite the infected person, and then they would be carriers of yellow fever. And so then they would go about spreading it to the population and continue to spread the disease spread the disease the female mosquito went from person to person infecting them and leaving unbeknownst to them more than just an itchy welt they left a deadly disease the river traffic from ports like new orleans carried yellow fever up the mississippi valley as long as mosquitoes were around to carry it and that's why it would subside in the fall after the first frost the frost would kill the mosquito population. Did they hibernate? Or they laid eggs that would last? Yes. Part of the mosquito the population can hibernate. And the other part of the mosquito population lays eggs that can survive through the winter. So does that mean that once those eggs hatched in the spring that they could just carry on the already existing disease? Or did they depend on the people coming in the ports every year for it to spread? I believe so. I believe that they had to rely on new infection because there were some years they wouldn't have an outbreak of yellow fever. At least not to that bad of an outbreak. I don't know for sure about that. That's something maybe interesting to... 
do more research on. But from what I know is I believe that it was each time because they would see it first in the port cities. So they would see New Orleans and then they'd see it creep up the Mississippi Valley, literally coming toward them like a wave. Yeah. The cases of yellow fever. So I believe that it was a reinfecting. A reinfection. Because the people would come into those port cities and then it would come up. Which was. Come up the river. I'm sure terrifying to watch it yeah. make its way to your town. Exactly. The other thing that we now know is that there was internal hemorrhaging in the victims, especially in the stomach and intestinal tract. And that was the cause of the black vomit. It was mucus blood and stomach acids ew i know so the yellow was because of the liver damage yeah so the infected their eyes and skin would turn yellow they were jaundiced you know like sometimes babies are yeah get jaundiced their livers aren't quite working great yet the people that were infected would get this liver damage jaundice and so they would literally turn yellow, and even the whites of their eyes would be yellow. Oh. They had such terrible back pain because of their kidneys. They were trying to shut down. So eventually, both kidneys and liver would shut down, and death usually took an agonizing two weeks. That's <laughs> a long time to suffer. That's, That's a sad. Really, yeah, yeah, really awful. You know, when you're sick, it feels like every day is like a week. Yeah, when we had COVID, it was a good four weeks. Um, Seemed like forever. But at least not every moment was like agonizing mm -hmm. and explosive. Oh, yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Memphis in this time was sadly a stinking, dirty city without sewers and sanitation. They had open sewers and privies, and swamp water just flowed through the middle of town. That sounds horrible. Yeah. No. No, <laughs> no thank you. It had been a mild winter with an unusual amount of rain in the spring of 1878, so there was a lot of stagnant water and swampy marshland. This gave mosquitoes the perfect opportunity to breed in excess. It's no wonder that this town was ravaged by this disease. But there were those that can only be classified as heroes, and they stayed. Sister Constance of St. Mary's Episcopal Church went to homes of those afflicted throughout the worst of the outbreak. She nursed the ill, provided comfort for the dying, and took in orphan children with no thought of herself or her safety. Sister Constance wrote in her diary, Yesterday, I found two young girls who had spent two days in a two-room cottage with the unburied bodies of their parents, their uncle in the utmost suffering and delirium, and no one nearer them but a black drayman who held the sick man in his bed. It was 24 hours before I could get those two fearful corpses buried and then I had to send for a police officer to the Board of Health before any undertaker would enter the room. One grows perfectly hardened to these things. Carts with eight or nine corpses in rough boxes are ordinary sights. I saw a nurse stop one day and ask for a certain man's residence. The black driver pointed over his shoulder with his whip at the heap of coffins behind him and answered, I've got him here in his coffin. 
she shares a marker with three other sisters, Thecla, Ruth, and Frances. They all stayed to care for the ill. Priest Charles Parson and Louis Schuyler from St. Mary's also stayed behind nursing the ill and ultimately gave their lives. They share a gravestone in the Howard Association plot of Elmwood. Four sisters of St. Mary's Cathedral who died while treating the sick are buried under a single grave marker in the central part of the cemetery. As the fever ran like a wildfire through their city, an organization was founded. The Howard Association formed to aid those struck by yellow fever. They raised money nationally to fight the epidemic and they organized a massive effort. They asked for help from doctors outside their city and there were some that came. One of these heroes was named R.H. Tate. He came to give what aid he could and tragically, the fever took his life after a time. His stone reads, Dr. R.H. Tate, 1845-1878, Hero of the Yellow Fever Epidemic, the first African-American professional to practice in Memphis. He answered the call of the Howard Association with seven other Cincinnati physicians. Three weeks later, he died of the plague. Erected by the Bluff City Medical Society, 2005. And I've really searched more information about Dr. Tate and just haven't been successful. I would be so interested to know more about his story. Yeah, it's really too bad that there isn't more information about him because he sounds like an amazing person. He was just 33 years old, a young man in the prime of his life, a time when no one knew the cause or cure. He had to have known there was little chance of surviving this epidemic, but he came anyway, willing to give his life to help others that were suffering. Next to him lies another physician, the marker of William R. Lowry. Although the stone is half buried, it reads, Dr. William R. Lowry of South Carolina. For a number of years, a resident physician of Memphis, passing through all the epidemics visited upon the city. He at last, while in the discharge of his duty, fell victim to, and here the rest of the stone is buried, but we know that it says he fell victim to the 1878 epidemic. One of my favorite examples of heroism was not by a doctor or nurse, nun or priest, but by a woman named Annie Cook. I love this story. <laughs> Although we really don't know if this was her real name, Annie was a prostitute and a madam, reportedly a beautiful woman inside and out. Although there are no known photographs of her, we know she was of German descent and grew up in Ohio. She worked for a family in Kentucky where she was remembered there for having a kind heart and aiding impoverished smallpox victims. She, in a time when prostitution was legal, had her name in the city directory and she was listed as madam and her house as a palatial resort for commercial affection. Ooh. She was known as the Madam of Gayoso Street, and her establishment was regarded as upscale, and she catered to the wealthy gentlemen of the community. For some reason, I always picture the sweet Belle Watling, the kind Madam in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> During the 1873 epidemic, she'd opened her elegant doors to the victims of the fever, and gained a reputation for expertise in caring for the victims of the disease, and she did the same five years later. 
When the plague hit, she dismissed her working girls and she turned her elegant mansion house brothel into a hospital. Two of her employees decided to stay and follow her generous example and volunteered to nurse the sick with her. Although there wasn't much she could do but hold a hand and wipe a feverish brow, this kind-hearted lady gently tended to them until they got well or slipped away. As anyone who has been ill knows that it could mean everything to a person who is suffering, and it takes a very special person. Annie caught the attention of local reporters who told of her good deeds in a series of stories. The outbreak was big news across the country, and Americans read about the hero hooker. Her heroism was a tiny bright spot in a dark situation. The news articles led to a commendation from the Christian women of Louisville. They sent her a letter that was published in the newspaper. It read, Godspeed, dear madam, and when the time comes, may the light of a better world guide you to a home beyond. They wrote this because dear Annie had contracted yellow fever, and word of her illness spread across the nation. Annie passed from this life on September 11th. She was buried in a simple grave. In the Memphis Appeal newspaper, of September 17, 1878, she was lauded in Victorian fashion as a converted sinner. It read, Out of sin the woman in all the tenderness and fullness of her womanhood merged, transfigured, and purified to become the healer. J. Mark Powell wrote in his article, The Hero Hooker, quote, Ironically, the selfless sacrifice of a woman whose occupation made her a sinner in many eyes perished fulfilling the teachings of Jesus Christ's great commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, unquote. Her work was not forgotten. Later, the Howard Association showed their respects for Annie by having her grave moved to Elmwood Cemetery, a spot more befitting the heroine of Mansion House. In 1979, a new large headstone was erected, and it reads, Annie Cook, born 1840, died of yellow fever, 1878. Such a good story. Yes. I love Annie. It's wonderful. I love that story because it just points out that there is good in anyone, no matter who they are. And I love that they recognized the goodness that she did. And I love the point about that she loved her neighbor as herself. Yeah. Emily Sutton, a 27-year-old and a prostitute like Annie Cook. She went by the name Fanny Walker. She had abandoned the trade, but remained in the city to help care for victims of the dread disease. She fell victim in the 1873 outbreak. Emily has a beautiful monument with a statue of a woman in flowing robes with hands clasped looking up to heaven. It is said that her clientele loved and missed her so much that they paid to have the memorial made for her. The grave of an 18-year-old girl named Maddie Stevenson lies near no man's land as well. In fact, it is an angel that stands over no man's land and points upward, meaning ascension to heaven. The reports of that day in the 1773 outbreak was that Maddie was a real angel, a young woman who was just starting out in life. She left her home and traveled unknown by her parents to Memphis, where she worked under direction of the Howard Association as a nurse was said that she worked tirelessly, giving a gentle touch and soft words of comfort to the dying. 
one of the stories that I have found about Maddie was that she was particularly kind and gentle and took on the worst cases. She helped a woman that was in labor and suffering from yellow fever. She gave birth to a small stillborn baby and soon passed from this life herself. They said that Maddie alone was brave enough to face the situation among all the women there. Maddie herself succumbed to the fever after only being in Memphis a short time. There was a funeral procession to Elmwood Cemetery with eight pallbearers carrying her casket, including the mayor. Newspapers around the country wrote of the young angel that gave her life to help the city of Memphis. Quote, hers was a martyrdom that the world cannot afford to forget, unquote, declared the Chicago Tribune. A few months later, a few young women went to visit Maddie's family and took them a lock of her hair and a few letters that she had written them before her illness. They thanked the young women again and again for their visit of sympathy and condolence and shed tears as they told of how she died. The last few epidemics had left Memphis broke. Half a million dollars had been donated by other states for burials and medical expenses. In 1879, the state legislature revoked Memphis's city charter. Irish and Germans seemed to take a very sizable hit in the numbers of deaths. This left large holes on the police force and other jobs that had been predominantly held by white men. It became the first time in Memphis history that the black community served as patrolmen on the police force. Long thought to be immune to the disease, black people contracted the fever in large numbers in 1878, but only 7% died, a much smaller percent than the Irish who comprised half of all that died. The African Americans who remained in Memphis during the epidemics worked tirelessly with the sick and dying as nurses, cart drivers, coffin makers, and grave diggers. They continued to hold positions in Memphis police, fire, and other departments long after black people were barred from such employment elsewhere. However, by the end of the century, Memphis joined other southern cities in denying city employment to the people who had helped carry them through the devastating epidemic. Another important positive is that after yellow fever visited the city once again, the next year in 1879, Memphis leaders embarked on ambitious sanitation reform. In fact, the citizens demanded it. Strict sanitation laws were passed outlawing open privies. They also began clearing away all the garbage that had accumulated since the 1878 epidemic due to the lack of funds to remove it. The decaying wooden paving blocks were torn up and gravel mixed with limestone roads were laid. The centerpiece of the sanitary reforms was a revolutionary sewer system designed by George Waring of New York. He used an unprecedented design which separated the sanitary sewer system from the storm sewers. It was the design that made Memphis the envy of others and was to revolutionize the design of sewer systems across the nation and did wonders to the health of the Memphis population. Ironically, George Waring died in 1898 after returning from Cuba, where he was modernizing their sewer system. The cause of death? Yellow fever. Yellow fever left as quickly as it had come. 
The fall came and gave them the frost needed to stop the disease, even though they didn't know why. In the year 1878, more than 5,000 died of yellow fever, and 20,000 perished throughout the Mississippi Valley. Is yellow fever still around today? Unfortunately, yes. Around 90% of the cases occur in Africa. Annual occurrence is about 200,000 cases with 30,000 related deaths. In the first half of the 20th century, the viral origin of the disease was identified. Its means of spreading were clarified and possible ways to prevent it were found. The concluding advance in these studies was Max Thaler's vaccine that has saved the lives of countless people. So Amy, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I've learned a lot. Learned a lot about yellow fever, something you never really wanted to know or didn't know you wanted to know. It makes you very grateful to live in the time you live in. It sure does. And even though we've all been through a really hard time this past year, it's getting better. It is. Thank goodness. So back to no man's land. It's a peaceful place. It looks empty, but it's not. It's full of Memphians lying side by side like they worked to save their city. There's mothers, children and fathers, friends, foes, heroes, and angels. I would like to honor all of the many men and women who lived and died nursing the sick during the yellow fever epidemics in Memphis. Those whose names we know and those that we don't know. The many brave everyday people who took no thought of themselves except to meet a great need. I know many of them are here in the sacred place they call no man's land. And that's what lies beneath. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Voices and boundless energy is hard on the neighbors.